0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to be talking about two countries whose politics is in a serious state of flux, Germany and Italy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just one pound an issue using the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Joining Helen and me today we have Hans Kundnani who's a senior fellow at Chatham House and Lucia Rubinelli who is a research fellow in Cambridge but is currently in Trieste, right Lucia? Yes. Yep. I think we'll start with Germany. I mean, Italian politics has reverted to type. It seems to me to be pretty complicated at the moment. But German politics is complicated too. So Hans, we now know the name of the person who's not necessarily going to succeed Angela Merkel as the candidate for the CDU in the next elections, but is currently the leader of the party. That's right, isn't it? Armin Laschet. Yes. So just tell us a bit about him and also just a bit about that dynamic. Because I think people outside Germany, it's one of the things we find hardest to understand in that we keep discovering the name of the person who is quote unquote succeeding Angela Merkel and then that person doesn't succeed Angela Merkel.
1: Yes exactly and I think I would slightly challenge the idea that German politics is in a serious state of flux. I mean when I've been on the podcast before I've sort of really been saying you know it's a serious state of continuity in German politics. In a sense I think the election of Armin Laschet as the CDU leader is a continuation of that continuity. He's the continuity candidate. So he's a former prime minister president of Nordrhein-Westphalia, and was seen as of the three candidates as being the one that was closest to Merkel, both sort of personally and ideologically. So as you say, it's not clear that he actually becomes the candidate for chancellor in the election in September. In fact, lots of people think that the fact that he got elected as party leader increases the chances that Markus Zerda, the Bavarian Christian Democrat leader, will become the candidate. But if he were to become the candidate, it would represent very much a continuation of what I call the Merkel consensus, this kind of centrist consensus embodied by Merkel that has dominated German politics for the last 15 years.
0: So to just make the case that there is still at least the possibility of change within continuity, that Merkel consensus, how solid is it? Because... I mean, one of the things about Lachette, and we'll come on in a second to the ways in which he might disrupt international geopolitical questions, but within Germany, if he is really cleaving to the centre, and as it were, kind of grand coalition vision of politics, there is a lot of pressure, at least potential pressure on that from outside it, isn't there, in Germany?
1: I think there's pressure from outside of Germany. I think the consensus within Germany is still pretty strong. I have to slightly nuance that in the sense that what a lot of people expect, especially with Laschet becoming Chancellor, if he were to become Chancellor, is that you would have a black-green coalition after September. In other words, a coalition of Christian Democrats and Greens. And based on the polls at the moment, it seems like that would be possible. And it's long been thought that that was what Merkel wanted, you know, even four years ago, but it wasn't possible in terms of the arithmetic So it would be a slight change. And and there is a kind of a shift there. But I would see a black-green coalition as, in a sense, although it's a change in terms of the parties, it would actually be a continuation of the Merkel consensus. So, yeah, ultimately still continuity, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue in German politics that arose after the last election was about executive formation after the election and the length of time that it took, for Merkel to construct a coalition. You know, she first tried the Jamaica coalition, which is the same parties that Hans has just said, plus the Free Democrats and the Free Democrats ultimately pulled the plug on those negotiations. And then after that failed, she had to go back to the grand coalition of the with the Social Democrats. But that put the Social Democrats in an incredibly difficult position, including producing an internal party rebellion and a, and a change of um, leadership. And I think if we looked at the state of German politics immediately prior to the pandemic, you could see the difficulty of trying to maintain grand coalition politics very much to the fore with what was going on in a number of the states. What's happened during the pandemic is that the Christian Democrat position has been strengthened, at least I'd say in the first six months of it, because Merkel was seen to do so well. and Germany was seen to do so well, but Merkel's leadership was seen to do so well. But I think in terms of german domestic politics the question is really is has the pandemic shifted things such that things are not as difficult about coalition formation because of the simultaneous weakness of the christian democrats and the social democrats as they were before the pandemic started and if it has changed it will be because the christian democrats are now in a stronger position than they were
0: and given that it also seems to me at least puzzling the thought that the first major european country that might see the green party in power represents continuity. Does that really represent continuity? I mean, that, if nothing else, suggests that green politics is not what it used to be, or maybe not even what it seems. If what would have seemed maybe 10, 15 years ago, like a really important shift, at least potential shift, now in German terms comes to represent a form of grand coalition continuity. Do the greens not make a difference?
1: That's a really interesting question. I think the German Greens are a little bit different from some Green parties in other countries. I think it's true that they're not what they used to be, but it's also that they were never quite what people thought they were. (laughs) At the beginning, when the Greens emerged in the late 70s, early 80s, it was really not clear, actually, that this was a left-wing party. It was this eclectic mixture of strange characters from across the political spectrum, including the far right. It then sort of coalesced in the 80s, into a centre-left party with you know particular positions around you know foreign policy and environmental policy that set it apart from the social democrats but was very much the natural coalition partner for the social democrats. Since then it's evolved again and it's become particularly on economic policy very centrist even as the other parties particularly the Christian Democrats have also moved on environmental policy. So, you know, Wolfgang Strait has this great line, which I you know I think there's something to it, that the Greens are the vegetarian section of the Christian Democrats. And certainly on economic policy, they're not at all a sort of radical left-wing party. They're very much the party of affluent Germans in the Southwest, but with a sort of environmental conscience. And that's, you know, partly the basis for this potential Black-Green coalition is that the two parties have converged. And again, this is why I say that, this is a continuation in the sense of this convergence between the mainstream parties in Germany that has taken place over the last 15 years. The Greens, I think, are part of that story, along with the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats.
2: The crucial thing is, is the Greens have been in power before in Germany, in the red green coalition that took power in 1998. And I think that the history of the wider Green movement in Germany is somewhat different than it is in other European countries, particularly because of the force of the anti-nuclear power, movement in Germany, which was tied to the rise of the Greens and is a good part of the explanation as to why, unlike, say, you know, like Britain or France, Germany's energy policies have gone in an anti-nuclear power direction.
0: Yeah, and the fact that I forgot that earlier coalition is evidence that it's maybe not the seismic shift that I was pretending that it was going to be.
1: And, uh, you know, a foreign policy, we might want to come back to this later, but on foreign policy, the Greens are quite interesting because, you know, there's a certain current within the Greens that is broadly pacifist for want of a better term. But there's another current of the Greens very much embodied by Joschka Fischer, foreign minister in that red-green coalition, which is, I think, probably the closest thing there is in German politics to the neocons. So, you know, again, they're very different from what one might imagine a Green Party to be.
0: So before we do the foreign policy and geopolitical questions, one more question about the domestic. The alternative for Deutschland, the AFD, where is that energy now? just as a movement, but also as a form of opposition to centrism. And the AFD has shifted its position. I mean, it's morphed into various different kinds of opposition, or rather, it's found different hooks for the kind of opposition it wants to drive. Where is it now?
1: I think the AFD has been the product of this centrist convergence embodied by Merkel. And even the name, the AFD, the alternative for Germany, is a direct response to Merkel's statement that there is no alternative to her policies. So the AFD, I think, has grown and emerged against the background of the Merkel consensus What's very interesting is that it's kind of reinvented itself a couple of times. You know, it started out as a, a party that was really opposed to Merkel's policies on the eurozone, in particular the bailouts of Greece, and then it seemed to be in trouble. And then the refugee crisis came along in 2015, and it reinvented itself as a more straightforwardly far right party centered on, on issues around immigration, Islam, and so on. And now we're at this moment where against the background of the pandemic, as Helen was saying, you know, Merkel has been seen as being quite competent, It strengthened her position in the polls. And the AFD is seen again as being in a a little bit of a crisis. And some people, I think, are are hoping that populism, not just in Germany, but across the world has been discredited by the pandemic. I think what's more likely to happen is that the AFD reinvents itself again. And as I say, there is a precedent already for this in, in Germany, you can already see this Happening, so in other words, you get a new kind of populism that links some of the older issues that the AFD has been mobilising on the basis of. In particular, I can imagine that a lot of the questions around the euro may now re-emerge in the context of the recovery fund and questions around, you know, the fiscal rules and, and so on. That combined, though, with a whole new set of issues related to the pandemic, and you see signs of this already. That the AFD talks, you know, one of its slogans, its new slogans, is stop the corona dictatorship so you can see how that there's a new set of issues that they can mobilize on the basis of around the restrictions a whole set of questions around vaccines there's this term vaccine nationalism going around and so you, you could imagine a new third iteration of the afd that combines some of these older themes with new themes that are specific to the sort of post pandemic moment
0: and could it include if we are looking at a, a cdu green coalition the thing that I suspect is going to emerge across the Western world over the next decade, which is politicians attempting to coalesce anti-environmental sentiment. So as environmental politics starts to bite in various ways, there is unquestionably a constituency for a politician or for a party who can gather together the different strands of resentment that that's going to provoke We've had little echoes of it with the possible morphing of the Brexit party into a kind of anti-lockdown, anti-cycle lane party here. Could the AFD do that if it was in opposition to a government that included the Green Party as coalition partners?
1: That's really interesting. I'm, I'm not sure, actually. I could see how that might work in Britain or the United States. Again, I think Germany might be a little different in the sense that the the green consensus, as it were, is so deeply entrenched and so widely held in in Germany that I think it's a little bit of a tricky strategy for the AFD. Because on the one hand, I I could imagine that precisely because that consensus is so strong, there'll be a small group of Germans who who you could mobilize against it. But I wonder if that slightly limits the appeal of the AFD in in Germany, as opposed to in, in some populist equivalents in other countries. My thought was more that Especially when you look at the, the protests in the Netherlands in the last few days, you know, which has been largely young people, I wonder if in terms of sort of broadening out the appeal of the AFD and reaching sort of new potential voters, I wonder if the anti-lockdown measures have more potential because in particular, as they say, there's a lot of anger among young people about those. But the idea of pursuing a sort of anti-green agenda, I'm not quite sure how that would work in Germany.
2: I think that Hans are by quite a lot of what you say about continuity in the attempt to basically keep the established parties in the centre and protect German politics from both the left party and the, and the AFD. But I think that what was really striking about this party leadership election that took place was how little agreement there really was amongst the candidates about this big issue of Nord Stream. And I think that what has happened this year, and it has gone on essentially during the course of the pandemic, they obviously not for pandemic um, reasons, is that the Christian Democrats have become quite internally divided about this. And I think that a turning point was the Navalny poisoning in the summer and the demonstrations in Belarus. So if we look at the candidates in the party leadership election, we've got Rutgen, who is against, straightforwardly against Nord Stream 2, in favour of cancelling, as I understand it. Mertz, who is in favour of a two-year moratorium on it, and Laschet really being, I was going to say, even more convinced than Merkel on the need to go ahead. And if you look at some of his comments about the Salisbury poisoning to sort of broaden it out into EU or European-Russian relations, I should say, more generally, he was pretty sceptical about the British line on that and doubted Russian responsibility and did so in public. So it seems to me that what has happened on the geopolitics side, and this is before we even get onto the China question, is that the Christian Democrats have become divided.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right. When you look at these foreign policy questions around China and Russia, the dynamics within the Christian Democrats look a little different. And in particular, as I think you quite neatly just suggested, actually Mertz was sort of the moderate candidate in the middle of Laschet and, and Rutger on these issues. At the same time, I think what's striking is that although this has been a bit of a row among Christian Democrats in the last few weeks, particularly driven by Rutgen, actually, who's been talking a lot about this and who is interested in these foreign policy questions around China and Russia, actually, this wasn't that important in the debate. And so I think that's right, that there are disagreements between Christian Democrats about these issues. But I don't think ultimately they are going to be that important. Where I think they will be important is because of the pressure that I think is increasingly going to be exerted on Germany from outside to bring us back to kind of where we started. I think on the one hand, the United States under Biden, and on the other hand, China is going to be increasingly pulling Germany in two different directions on some of these questions. And the Merkel approach, and I think this is the the German instinct in general on these on these questions, is to sort of try and reconcile both sides and and triangulate a little, little bit between China and the US, rather than to be drawn in to the sort of strategic competition between China and the United States on the American side. But I think that's going to become increasingly difficult. And I think one issue on China, where this is increasingly going to be a problem for Germany, is around the whole question of genocide, as the US is now calling it in Xinjiang. And, you know, we're speaking on Holocaust Memorial Day, And it's quite striking that these parallels are increasingly being made between Auschwitz and Xinjiang. Um, And I think that's going to be increasingly a problem for Germany and above all for Volkswagen, the iconic German company, which has a plant in Xinjiang and also obviously has a a history going back to Nazism, which makes this particularly uh, difficult for them to deal with.
2: I wonder what you think, Hans, about the way in which the China issue might play out in terms of domestic coalition formation, because it seems to me that there's been quite a lot of noises coming out of the Greens that have been pretty critical about Merkel and China policy in the EU-China investment deal in particular. So is it the case that it's possible that actually the thing that looks relatively stable, albeit it's always having to keep these disruptive forces out and was struggling before the pandemic to do so, is actually now going to be unsettled by the geopolitical forces that the Merkel government struggled with through the entire Trump presidency, and indeed, treated in some senses an existential disaster for Germany.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And and I I agree that that could potentially be one of the difficult issues um, between the Christian Democrats and the the Greens, were they to be in a position in September to, to form a coalition. Again, though, I think my instinct would be, I find it difficult to imagine that it would be a deal breaker in the but I agree that the Greens, again, do have a probably the most hawkish stand on, on these kinds of issues. This, again, goes back to the, the history of the Greens. You know, Joschka Fisher, when he was foreign minister, the most famous moment, really, of his time as foreign minister was, was during the Kosovo War, where he famously made these analogies between Kosovo and Auschwitz um, and made the argument for... German participation in the NATO military intervention on the basis of Auschwitz um, which he was you know subsequently criticized for but but that current is still quite strong I think within the Greens perhaps more than in any other party they almost see themselves as the conscience of Germany in that sense and I I agree that could be a a source of tension with the Christian Democrats in, in the coalition negotiations.
0: Before we bring in Lucia and Italy which I think really is in a state of flux one more question, Hans. There's quite a lot of coverage in the British newspapers, actually quite a lot of coverage today about public opinion in Germany. So we've been talking about these questions, relatively speaking, as high politics. But there does seem to be quite a lot of evidence that anti-American sentiment in Germany, which was always has always been quite strong during the Trump years, has really sort of gone through the roof. And that the assumption in places like the UK that a Biden presidency will kind of restore a certain kind of familiar normalcy in European-American relations. In Germany, the level of anti-American feeling is so high that there isn't obvious evidence that that's the case. And it's not just about Trump, that clearly has a lot to do with Trump. But America is, for many Germans, not an ally
1: anymore. I think that's right, David. Um, But I think anti-Americanism has a long history in Germany, and it fluctuates wildly. You know, if you think back, for example, to the '60s, um, there was a lot of anti-Americanism at that time. Then, you know, during the Bush era, there was a lot of anti-Americanism. Things changed dramatically when Obama became president, and then it shot up again to even higher levels after Trump became U.S. president. It is a little different this time. I think the shock of Trump was a little different to the shock of Bush, and I think there is a sense that. Um, that you can't go back somehow in the way that people hoped you you might do after Obama became president. But ultimately, I think in the end, the sort of rising and falling levels of anti-Americanism in Germany are not really what drives this, the Germany-US relationship, I mean. Uh, I think ultimately it's more sort of structural, as it were, and I, and I think the, the key factor is, is more that I think Germans don't just, they simply don't believe anymore that they need the United States in the way that they did during the Cold War. They don't feel threatened. They don't really feel they need the U.S. security guarantee for protection against um, Russia. And so I think actually the, the question around the relationship with the U.S. and in particular around these security questions becomes more of a question of you know, how committed is Germany to other European countries that do feel threatened by Russia, particularly, obviously, Poland and the Baltic states, because, as they Germans don't believe, probably rightly, that Russia will ever attack Germany. So it really becomes a question of of their commitment to other European countries, rather than, um, you know, their their own uh, threat perceptions and, and national interests.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully, with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So Lucia, if we turn this to Italy, some of what we've been talking about there is clearly very different, including the sort of continuity of coalition building. But there are also echoes above all, whether populism has been turned away or whether populism has many avenues to come back. So in Italy, we are really in the eye of the storm in that Giuseppe Conte, the Prime Minister, resigned yesterday, am I right? Yes. And he's got 72 hours to try and come back. So we're halfway through his period to try and reassemble a government. I don't quite know how. Can he do that?
3: Well, no. (laughs) Um, Okay, good.
0: I always like a good straight answer.
3: No, the situation is rather complicated because so the the reason why Conte stepped down yesterday is because Renzi decided to recall two of his ministers plus one undersecretary from the government. In a sense, this was a long-announced crisis. But the reason, so the reason why it happened now is threefold, or at least that's the reason that Renzi gave. So he said that he no longer shares the method that the government, and especially the, the Prime Minister Conde is using. And he accused him of undermining democratic institutions in the way in which he uses emergency legislation, especially to deal with, uh, with the pandemic, of course. The second reason is a substantive reason, or at least so Renzi says, and it mostly has to do with the fact with two things so the first is that he accuses Conte of not having a long-term plan for economic development in Italy and the second is that he believes that Conte had too cold a response to the capital attacks on January 6th and the third reason has to do with the recovery fund so basically with how the government is planning to to use the funds coming from the Next Generation EU project. And again, here, there are two main questions. One has to do with the governance of this uh, fund. And the government's project is to basically create a a small group of six ministers plus Conte himself, who'd have the power to decide uh, almost everything about how this money will be used. And the second issue has to do with, with the fact that, according to Renzi and his party, the, the approach that the government has to the recovery fund is too statist. It's it's too oriented towards state spending money instead of giving incentives for private investments. So these are the, the reasons of the crisis. And oh, and I also forgot that Rensi wants the government to accept the use of the European Stability Mechanism for healthcare.
0: So can I just say, that's quite a lot of demands to make for someone who's polling at about 3%.
3: Exactly. And, and that's what makes this crisis so difficult to understand and also to see how it's going to end. Because Renzi, as you as you just said, is basically pulling at close to nothing. And if there were to be elections, he would probably not even make it to, to not even one seat in parliament. I think the minimum amount of votes that you need to have to, to get a seat is just above what he's pulling at around now. So the question is, what is Renzi trying to do here? And what it looks like he's trying to do is that he wanted Conte to lose power. He wanted him to step down and then to create a new government, potentially without Conte, but with a stronger Renzi, which basically would mean Renzi would remain outside the government, would remain just as a a normal senator, but he would put well two or three of his most loyal senators as ministers in very important ministries. So that's probably Rentsch's plan. Whether it will work or not is not clear, because the the, the other two coalition partners, so the Five Star Movement and the Democratic Party have been saying for up to two weeks now that they do not want anything to do with Renzi anymore. And that's especially true of the five-star movement who never liked Renzi. So here the question is whether they will stick to it and hence the Democratic Party, the five-star movement and Conte will have to find a different majority in parliament, which at the moment seems very difficult. Or, on the contrary, whether they decide that that they do not want to go to new elections and hence they are happy to bring renzi back into government but that will probably come with, come to the with the cost of having to to do away with conte so there will be a new prime minister probably
0: so it seems that it's consistent with a the broad theme of italian politics over many years which is on the one hand these many different parties struggle to form stable coalitions among themselves. And there's a lot of chopping and changing in leadership and in the ways in which these parties configure their own interests. And on the other hand, there's a fear of elections. There's just that long-standing thought that the one disciplining effect here, the one thing that could bring these people back together, is that the worst option for almost all of them, or maybe even for all of them, is fresh elections because of the thing that, Lucia, we always talk about, which is there in the background is Salvini.
3: Yes, absolutely. So if there is one thing that makes me think that they will somehow form a new government coalition is exactly the fear of Salvini. Now, Salvini has managed to bring together the so-called center-right coalition, which is basically himself, so the, the League, Meloni's party, so Brothers of Italy, plus Berlusconi. And the three parties together would have the majority. If, if we were to go to elections now, Salvini would be prime minister in all likelihood. Now, this prospect is quite scary, and also the president of the republic, it sounds like it's trying to avoid it by all means. But there is also another, an added fear, if you want, which is that uh, a few months ago, parliament first and then the electors via referendum decided to half the number of seats in Parliament, which would mean that half the members of Parliament would lose their seats. And of course, this is a very big incentive not to uh, go to elections.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that what's striking, or there's several things that are striking about what's going on in, in Italy, but we should remember that Conte started off as a Prime Minister of, to use this language, an anti-establishment government that did include the, the League. And the reason why Italy's ended up with the de facto grand coalition that it has had since the summer of 2019 is, is that at, um, the five-star change side took Conte with them. And now, because that coalition, the sort of dispensing with essentially with the coalition that had won the in 2018 depended on, on Renzi. Renzi had the ability, despite, as David said, having and representing such a small number of Italian voters to play power broker. So in that sense, Italian politics has been about sort of undoing the result of the, the last election and then trying to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But I think that it is important, too, as Lucia said, to note that the role that the EU Recovery Fund has played in all this, because essentially it seems that um, Renzi's primary pretext for pulling out was that Conte was trying to use the EU Recovery Fund for his own purposes and had too much control over it so it's always the case i think you know in italy that the the question of who has the the directest access to the resources that are supported by or either come from the eu or supported from the by the eu like qe and the the european central bank is pretty pivotal to what's going on so there's always a question of like whose hands are the resources that come from the eu in
3: yes i think that that's absolutely right and there are two things I would like to, to say about this. So the first is, Helen, you said that it sounds like Italian politics in the past two and a half years has been mostly about avoiding uh, electoral results similar to those that that came out of the elections of 2018. And I think that's right. But also what came out, so the situation now is substantially changed, mostly because Salvini doubled his his share of votes. So in 2018, he only had something like 18 19 percent and now he's pulling well he has lost some traction but he's still pulling at 24 25 and meloni so again the far right brother of Italy party party leader she is also pulling at 15 or so so the situation is that if we were to go to elections now the center right would win which didn't happen in 2018 in 2018 the biggest party was the five-star movement which is projected to lose half of its vote at votes at the moment, so that, that's one slight difference. And then on the, uh, on the question of the EU Recovery Fund, I think that one added reason of, of concern is that Conte has repeatedly declared that he wants to create his own party. And of course, the idea of giving 200 billion odd billion euros to a man plus six of his ministers. Who wants to create a new party is somehow... I mean, Renzi might have a point there when he's saying that it's not transparent enough and that parliament should have more of a say in how this money is used. First, for general reasons of accountability, but also because we're not sure of what Conte might want to do with this money, given that there will be new elections in two years. And another thing that is worth adding, especially when thinking about why nobody but the center-right coalition wants to go to new elections, is that next year, we will have to elect a new president of the republic. And of course, if we were to go to elections now, that would mean that it would be the center-right who picks the president. And Salvini already said that his candidate would be Berlusconi. Now, it's not entirely clear whether this is possible, given all of his problems with uh, penal justice. But nonetheless, it is a worrying idea.
0: And how much of this has to do with what's happened to Conte himself? Because my memory of when we first talked about this is he became prime minister as a kind of stopgap. And his job was to hold together the five star and league government by being neither and somehow stopping them from squabbling and falling out. Uh, But he, he, he was a surprise in some ways, and he didn't have a huge sort of political profile. And the pandemic has changed that. So, you know, he he had a good six months until he had a bad six months. But all these worries now about him accumulating all this power, creating his own personal political party, having 200 billion euros at his disposal, it's quite a transformation in a couple of years for someone who was initially a kind of placeholder prime minister.
3: Yes, it is a, transfer, a transformation. And I think that nobody was expecting it in the sense that, as you said, when his name was first made, was just because he seemed to be this sort of invisible political personality that could act as a placeholder. He was um, neither
0: one thing nor the other. That was his no point. exactly,
3: and, and the idea was that there would be two vice prime ministers, if you remember, and one was Salvini and the other was Di Maio, so the leader of the Five Star Movement. That changed with the second Conte government, because in this second in the second round, so the government that came out of summer twenty nineteen. Conte is prime minister, but he doesn't have vice prime ministers. So somehow the the new coalition, so the PD plus Five Star plus Renzi, agreed to give him more power, agreed to, I guess, his demand to have a heavier political profile himself. And then, of course, with the pandemic that grew and grew, and that's something that, again, Renzi has repeatedly accused him of doing, he took all the media space that he could take to raise his public profile. And even yesterday, when he resigned, he had the president of the republic wait because he was busy writing a Facebook post and apparently recording a Facebook video explaining to the Italian voters why he had to resign. So he has certainly been into the business of creating a very strong image uh, for himself. And it looks like that his potential party is now polling at 15 to 17%, which is quite... I mean, it's almost the same as the Five Star Movement, and of course, I think that's one of the reasons why both the PD and the Five Star Movement are sticking to him. They they are promising him that even though he resigned, he will get, he will become prime minister again for a third Conte government, just because otherwise uh, his party is likely to steal much of their votes.
1: Yeah, I suppose in a way this is more of a, a question than a comment, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm struck by. The role of the recovery fund in Conte's resignation, as Lucia has been describing. And then I was also talking about the sort of possible return of the sort of politics around the euro uh, returning in Germany. And in the last couple of days, there's been a bit of a debate within the Christian Democrats about the debt break, not so much in the context of the eurozone, but just in the German domestic context. So I guess what I'm wondering about is, is. how the politics of the recovery fund and the euro in Italy will intersect with the politics of the recovery fund and the euro in in Germany as, you know, to the sort of paradigmatic creditor country and the paradigmatic debtor country in a way. I, I I I don't really have a theory of this, but maybe Helen does.
2: Yeah, I was going to add something about this because I think it is pretty important to note that at the moment the EU recovery fund looks like a boon it looks like something that Italian um, politicians can fight over as to who controls it. And I think that's a significant part of what's going on at the moment, but it won't be very long before the EU recovery fund turns into a political problem because of the the conditionality and the reforms that they have to go with it. Once plans for how spending this money is submitted and it's come out in the last few days that the commission is even unhappy with the German government's plans about how it's going to um, spend this money and as we know what's happened with the the various governments that have been in power, and I don't mean by this the, the five-star no, Liga coalition, but going back to Renzi's government, they end up in fights with the Commission and needing to push back for domestic reasons quite strongly about the Commission's demands for reform because it's very difficult to pursue these reforms um, through the Italian um, Parliament. So in one sense, I think that we can expect that Italian politics around the relationship with the EU and EU's resources to go back relatively quickly to something that it was before the recovery fund came about.
3: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think one signal in that direction is that, for example, yesterday Salvini made very clear that were he to be the prime minister, he wouldn't take the money from the recovery fund he said he would take the the money that has no conditions attached to it but he wouldn't so he certainly wouldn't take any of the borrowing that comes with the recovery fund and the reason he gave for that is precisely the fact that the eu the commission would then impose conditionalities on it and this this is something relatively new that's probably you know salvini gearing up for an electoral campaign but but it, as helen was saying it has the, the the conflict over how Italy spends its money and whether Italy is capable or not to reform its system, especially the public sector, is coming back in full force.
0: So could we finish briefly with something that Hans mentioned earlier, which is absolutely central, at least this week, to political discussion, not just in Germany and Italy, but certainly in the UK as well, which is vaccine politics. How much potential do you think that has in either Germany or Italy to disrupt things? There are emerging very clear differences, and Some of these differences are to do with, Hans, as you said, what's called vaccine nationalism. And some of them are just questions of competence and efficiency in getting the vaccine out there. And then there are clearly also differences in public responses, although there seems to be less vaccine scepticism than might have been feared. But does this have real disruptive potential either for grand coalition politics in Germany in the medium term or in the short term in Italy for actually being able to form a government
1: I'm not sure that it has the potential to disrupt coalition politics. But what I think is really interesting about the debate about vaccines in Germany is is how it intersects with the EU and questions around German national interest and the European interest. So the debate in Germany in the last couple of days about this has been prompted by some in Germany criticising the EU's slowness in delivering on the vaccines, to which some other people in Germany then responded that that was a kind of vaccine nationalism because you were criticising the EU. I think it sort of opened up a kind of a fault line in the way that Germans think about um, the EU versus German national interest, obviously, particularly because one of the vaccines was in part a German vaccine. So I think it exacerbates all of these questions about um, how the German national interest sort of intersects with the European interest. And and what I'm struck by is how there's this tendency, I think, among pro-Europeans, particularly in Germany, to think that something which is problematic at a national level, which you can dismiss as nationalism, is perfectly unproblematic to do at the European level. So this, this came up at the beginning of the pandemic when you know, initially there were national bans on the export of PPE. Uh, France and Germany have these national bans, and that was considered outrageous nationalism. <laughs> And then, you know, a week or two later, the EU itself imposed, you know, EU-wide export restrictions on PPE, and that was considered a triumph of European unity, rather than, in a way, even more problematic uploading to the European level of something that was problematic at the national level. And I think the same kind of thing is is happening now that there is this reflex to. Condemn any sort of national approach, but often to take the same approach at the European level and and to see it as being completely unproblematic. So now there are um, these discussions around EU wide export restrictions on vaccines, which, you know, as I say, many people see as being perfectly unproblematic in Germany.
0: Lucia, in Italy, when we talked about it before, you said there was, even if there wasn't scepticism about the vaccine itself, there was a lot of scepticism about the government's ability to deliver on it. Presumably some of that scepticism has now been reinforced.
3: Well, yes and no, because so there are two things to consider here. One is that the, the vaccination process in Italy is mostly run by the regions. And so the, the way in which in the first few weeks of the vaccine campaign things worked out was that certain regions, especially regions in the northeast of Italy, did quite well and other regions, especially in the South, lag behind. So I guess what one can see at the national level is that the the vaccination process is mostly affecting that kind of regional divide that we discussed uh, before, rather than tensions within government coalition or in parliament. And then in terms of the relationship with the EU and vaccine nationalism, I think that some of what Hans said applies also to Italy in the sense that there is a general sense of relief at the idea that the, idea that the EU is fighting this battle for, for all countries. Yet at the same time, uh, especially in the last few days, there has been a lot of criticism of the type of contracts that the EU has signed with uh, Pfizer, with AstraZeneca and with Moderna. So that I'm not sure where this will go, but I don't think, at least in the short term, that it will affect parliamentary politics. I think it will mostly affect regional politics and criticism at the level of European politics.
0: So finally, Lucia, in relation to Germany, this is what we've been talking about is going to play out over this year. And we've got elections coming up definitely in September. The crisis is much more short term in Italy. 72 hours, I think, is how long Conte has. So he's got to get a government or a government will have to be created by someone else this week. How long can this crisis last? I mean is this gonna be a rolling thing that the new government itself is likely to come under similar pressure is and I used it as a slight cliche and maybe it's not the best way to put it, but I described Italian politics as reverting to type it looks it looks very unstable in the short term. Is that right
3: yes i think I think it is quite likely that this is a crisis that will be solved in the short term. I'm not sure if it will be solved in in the next seventy two hours but say in the next week or so. But that that will present itself again at least once or twice before the natural um, election deadline. And you know, if you think about um, the past two years and a half since the 2018 elections, we already had two changes of government, and this is going to be the third. So I think instability is uh, will be part of the next government as well. Things might change if Berlusconi decides to leave the coalition with Salvini and Meloni and decides to enter into the majority. That might give the government some stability, but also the five-star movement will be very, very unhappy because Berlusconi was never together for the five-star movement.
0: So also Italian politics is reverting to type because we're waiting on Silvio Berlusconi.
3: Yes, yet again.
0: Next week on Talking Politics, we're speaking with the historian Colin Kidd about the future of the Union, the UK, as part of a series that we will be developing over the next few months, looking at the different parts of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and their long and complicated history. A couple of announcements before we go. The new series of History of Ideas begins next Tuesday. We're going to put the first episode out on Talking Politics, as well as on our separate stream, History of Ideas. But after that, if you'd like to hear the remaining 11 episodes, you'll need to subscribe to History of Ideas wherever you subscribe to Talking Politics. And from next week, we're going to be offering the opportunity for anyone who'd like to take it up to listen to Talking Politics without the discussion being interrupted by ads in the middle. How to do this will be appearing soon in our show notes, but don't worry, I promise you it's not complicated and we will be really grateful for your support. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics.